Welcome to this third season of Reset the Table. I'm Caitlin Welsh, director of the CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program. This summer's consecutive climate shocks and Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative jeopardize food security and nutrition worldwide. And the role of food systems in achieving global climate goals is increasingly clear as we head into COP28 this fall. We'll examine solutions to food insecurity around the world and right here at home during this limited run of Reset the Table. The CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program will be back in 2024 to tell a new story about food and water. Join us, and now to today's show. Welcome back to Reset the Table. I'm Caitlin Welsh, Director of the CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program. For those of you who read and think about global food security and nutrition, Dr. Halorn Sadad needs no introduction. But for others, a brief summary of Dr. Haddad's considerable contributions to global food security and nutrition policy and programming. He served for 10 years as the director of the Food Consumption and Nutrition Division at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, for 10 years as director of the Institute of Development Studies in the UK, for two years as the co-chair and lead author of the Global Nutrition Report, and since 2016 as the executive director of GAIN, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. In 2018, Dr. Herdot was awarded the World Food Prize with David Navarro for extraordinary intellectual and policy leadership in bringing maternal and child nutrition to the forefront of the global food security agenda and thereby significantly reducing childhood stunting. And in early 2023, King Charles III made Dr. Herdot a Companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George for his services to international nutrition, food, and agriculture. Lauren Sadad, congratulations, and welcome back to CSIS. Thank you, Caitlin. Great to be here. Likewise, great to have you. So I'd like to start with the topic of water security. The UN Water Conference was held earlier this year up in New York. Water security was a focus of the heads of several UN agencies of the UN FAO and the World Food Program at the launch of the State of Food Security and Nutrition Report in New York earlier this summer. And of course, we launched the CSIS Project on Water Security under the rebranded CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program just last month. So I'd like to start with discussing with you the importance of water security to global nutrition. And I know that this is something that you have thought about for a long time, but perhaps has not received the attention that it deserves. So let's start here. Thanks, Caitlin. You know, water security is, of course, vital for a whole range of reasons. For nutrition, we've, we've known for a long time that uh, malnutrition, especially childhood stunting and wasting, is caused by obviously a lack of adequate nutritious food, but also a big contributor is a lack of clean water and, and good sanitation, which is obviously goes hand in hand with clean water. And they're equally important, you know, uh, food, water and sanitation and health and gender. Those are four four quadrants of the of the drivers of malnutrition, especially for early childhood. But um, in the work that GAIN does, our goal is to really make healthier diets more available and accessible to those most vulnerable who most need the nutrients and protective elements in those foods. And we have a big program in Kenya, which is trying to improve the consumption of dark green leafy vegetables for 5 million people. And one of the big constraints against consumption is it's, it is prices in some cases important. Availability is in some cases important, but often the dark green leafy vegetables are there, they're affordable, they're even desirable, but consumers are nervous 
about purchasing them because they think there's contamination, there's soil, there's fertilizer, there's stuff, gunk on the vegetables, and they don't have enough clean water to wash that stuff off. So I think water is intrinsically bound up in food security in so many ways, as well as nutrition. And it is, it is a shame that the two are separated so much. Let's talk about some of Gain's specific initiatives here. I know that the Eat Safe initiative has seen a lot of progress here. And of course, water is important to food safety in the countries that Gain is focused on under Eat Safe. Eat Safe is a really interesting program. It's mainly operating in Nigeria and Ethiopia. And it does three things that I think are different. So when I first heard about that Gain was beginning to develop this program, I said, it's great because if food isn't safe, it's not nutritious. But I said, what's different? Lots of people are working on food safety. And my team said, actually, Lawrence, there's three things that are different. First of all, we are really focusing on wet markets, small informal markets that most people on low incomes and most people at risk of malnutrition, that's where they get their food. Mm. Second thing is we're really focusing on consumers as change agents. What can we do to make consumers not just victims, but actually agents of change? We've, we're talking about using Google Lens, uh, which is you, know, you take a photo on Google and it gives you, it'll tell you a whole range of attributes about this, this picture. Can we use that, for example, to take pictures of vendors or markets? And if there's uh, a live animal next to uh, food being sold, or if there's meat being sold next to vegetables, or if servers are not using spoons, or if food is too close to the floor, you know, the pictures can, can pick that up and kind of put some red flags immediately back to the consumer or a vendor or a market stall uh, manager. So that's the second bit. And the third bit that makes it different, I think, is it's really trying to do on the ground work, but linking it back into things like Codex, which sets standards, because there are no standards for informal wet markets in Codex. There is no STG indicator for food safety. It's extraordinary. That's quite interesting. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I've been following the work of Gain under Eat Safe with, with interest and hope to be highlighting your, um, your, your, your findings sometime soon. Yeah, I should say it's uh, really, uh, we get fantastic support from USAID on this program. Wonderful. So. That's great. I think this is a, a good segue to, to something else that's been a focus of your work for, for a long time. You were chair of Action Track 1 under the UN Food System Summit that was held in September 2021. And lately you've been writing and speaking about policy coherence and about shifting from mm -hmm. A, a mindset of agricultural transformation to one of food systems transformations. And the example that you just gave about wet markets in Nigeria and Ethiopia calls to mind to me that that success would necessarily involve those who care about infrastructure, of those who care about agriculture, about labor force development, of water infrastructure and others. All of those and many more must be involved you know, in food systems transformations. Talk to us a little bit about some tools that GAIN is developing to to promote this approach? First, let me just uh, address the, the difference between ag transformation and food system transformation. When I was taught agricultural economics, ag transformation was let's get the productivity of farmers up. That will create surplus food. It'll create income for the farmers. The farmers will then demand products and services in the rural space from non-farmers they will get more income, that will generate back to the buy more food, and so virtuous circles will be set up. But we know that those are not, they're not automatically going to happen, those virtuous circles. We have to, to help them. We have to connect 
markets, consumers and producers via markets and value chains. Um, I'm looking, we're currently looking a little bit at regenerative agriculture, the big buzzword. Mm-hmm. Big, it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. But the big question that most people have is how do you scale it? And most of the scalers are looking at technology or institutions, but none of them are linking it to are consumers actually going to buy this stuff? Are consumers interested in buying food that is produced sustainably and regeneratively? Mm. If they are not, mm. it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. So a food system perspective is brilliant at, at connecting demand and supply at its simplest and, and looking at the policy environment mm-hmm. that is strengthening both demand and supply and the connections between the two. So at the Food System Summit Plus Two, which was just mm-hmm. happened in Rome, mm-hmm. some of the things that I and I go now to move on to tools. Yep. Some of the things that I think is really exciting, and it's called 3FS. And 3FS is an initiative of EFAD and the World Bank, and Gain was, was one of the advisors. But it basically riffs off something that President Biden said about a year ago, I think. He says, don't, sh- don't tell me your priorities. Show me your budget, right? We all know, any of us that are in control of budgets, that is a true reflection of your priorities. Mm-hmm. And so... About a year ago, Ifad World Bank and Gain and others said, can we construct a food system budget? Does a government even know how much it's spending? And so, of course you can. It's just incredibly laborious. You have to go through thousands of lines of budgets and you have to then allocate, this is 100% a food system space, this is 20%, this is 30%. Yeah. But they did it. They did it for two or three countries. And now those two or three countries, there's a methodology to show them what they spend and it's more importantly, it's where do they spend it? Which regions, which sectors? Mm. So it, if you want to transform your, form your food systems, you need data on what you spend. Mm-hmm. You also need data on how you're doing in terms of policies, in terms of outcomes, in terms of intermediate outputs. And that's where the countdown initiative comes in. Okay. This is a set of 50 indicators that track food system progress. And they cover nutrition, hunger, but also environment livelihoods, resilience, all the things you talked about earlier on in the Mm -hmm. podcast. And that's been put together by a group of 50 researchers from around the world, 25 different organizations. And we hope it's going to be used more and more by more and more organizations to track food system progress, and most importantly, by the countries themselves. Certainly. Does this relate to the food systems policy coherence diagnostic tool? That's, yes, the food system diagnostic Food System Coherence Diagnostic Tool, we really have to come up with a good name for that. <laughs> but that is also, you know, if you want all your outcomes, one of the one of the big things the Food System Summit did was it alerted pe- people like me that there's a big world out there, there's a big food system world out there, and they don't care about hunger and malnutrition. Mm-hmm. They care about biodiversity, they care about resilience, they care about all, all sorts of other things that are that are equally important. The question is, how can you change your food system so that you are pushing forward on all, all those fronts. So how do you make sure your policies are aligned? So we're working with Academia 2063 to come up with a tool that maps policies into outcomes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Academia Academia 2063 is an Africa-based NGO, is that correct? Pan-African, yeah, think That's tank. Right. Okay. okay. Um, it seems to me that that is, could be quite useful, not just for, for food insecure countries, but potentially also for development agencies mm-hmm. who might not be aware that the programs and policies that they're mm-hmm. encouraging in, 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 in developing countries might also be at odds um, with each other. 
Do you think that this tool could be useful um, also in high-income countries? Absolutely. Okay. Maybe the most useful in high-income countries. <laughs> I think I could agree with you there. <laughs> Let's shift from a discussion about food systems to the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine on global food security and malnutrition. The UN hosted the first food system summit in September 2021. A lot of momentum about this new approach to global food security and nutrition. Only several months later, Russia invaded Ukraine, and it seemed to be that that overtook headlines. Now, do you think it was the case that that this war overtook momentum about food systems, or that in the wake of this this war, with repercussions for global food security and nutrition, we saw actually a food systems approach being implemented? Yeah, it's a really difficult one. I would have to say more the former. I think um, you know for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense that we need to address the emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Food prices actually in 2023 are more are closer to 2021 than 2022. So okay. they've come down quite a bit, but they were high in 2021 anyway. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think the I think the response has been understandably we've got to address the issues of high food prices. High food prices terribly damaging to diet quality. It's the first thing that goes when mm-hmm. food prices go up. Mm-hmm. Eventually kicks into lower food quantity mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. We know that the poorest spend the most of their income on on food. So they're the most vulnerable to high fertilizer, high food, high finance mm-hmm. costs. All of those things went up. Mm-hmm. But I do think the short term has has kicked out the medium term. Yeah. So a lot of the the advocacy and the dialogues that we talk about are, yes, you have to get the balance right between addressing the short term, but you have to keep your eye on the medium term. Otherwise, if your food systems aren't more resilient, they're just going to keep succumbing to these shocks. These shocks, mm-hmm. I mean, every shock seems to be unique and individual and idiosyncratic. But I think if you look at trends in shocks, we are, we are in a period of shocks, you know, cl- if only because of climate change. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to build the resilience of our food systems. We can't over rely on global value chains. Mm-hmm. You know, Ukraine had such a big impact on the rest of the world because there aren't that many bread baskets around the world. We have to embrace the notions of diversity more in our food systems, diversity mm-hmm. of which kinds of crops mm-hmm. are grown, mm-hmm. the diversity in terms of lengths of value chains, diversity in terms of different uh, methods of producing mm-hmm. food, and of course, diversity in, in uh, consumption, of course. Um, I'd like to underscore a point that you made, which is that when food prices rise, it's diet quality that's affected first. And, and I find that in, in the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when exports, so wheat, maize, sunflower oil, and some other commodities were most affected, when the price of those commodities rose, we saw a decrease in consumption of other nutritious foods. Exactly. When the price of those commodities uh, rises, they're such fundamental staples. Mm-hmm. Consumers uh, spend a lot of their income getting those mm-hmm. because that's the first thing mm-hmm. they they secure, mm-hmm. and of course um, that means less less money for any anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I see lots of politicians and lots of journalists get caught up in this yeah. in this issue. Yes. We're not doing a good enough job of explaining it. Yeah, um, I, I saw some uh, relatively real time analysis out of IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, of the impact of high commodity prices in Egypt on diet qualities among Egyptians, showing that due to high price of bread and other staples, consumption of meats and other high, more nutritious foods was decreasing, um, which we could see 
in the midst of the period of, of high food prices in 2022. So I think it's important to call attention to, to real-time analysis such as that. It's economics 101. Yeah. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for IFPRI. I worked there for a long time and they do fantastic work, but it is economics 101. Yeah. You know, as, as income goes up, as food prices go up, real income goes down and you have less diverse consumption. For the next food system shock, um, which which will happen, shock in production and, and exports in a, in a producing region and in a breadbasket, what would a food systems approach to such a global shock look like? That's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, I think a food system approach means we look for we look to protect consumption. So I think when you look about when you think about food systems, you're really starting at the consumption end. Of things, mm-hmm. You should mm-hmm. you shouldn't start at the production end. You should start at the consumption end because that's those market signals are driving what farmers do. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the at the market signals at the consumption end. Mm-hmm. And you're looking for different ways of protecting consumption, whether it is I mean, and consumption of farmers as well mm-hmm. as consumption of non-farmers. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, everyone buys a big chunk of their their food. Even farmers buy a big chunk of their food. So they're very susceptible mm-hmm. to food prices from the production side and the consumption side. So I think you're looking at social protection, really important. Social protection scales up a lot, scaled up a lot during COVID. It scaled up a lot during the Ukraine crisis. But we're missing opportunities with social protection because it's not just about income. It could be income increases that are stimulating the production of nutritious mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. It could be income increases that are stimulating the consumption of mm-hmm. nutritious food. So you can make social protection programs more nutrition friendly or more climate friendly. I think it's about paying attention to the middle of the food system. When there's a crisis, policymakers tend to look, focus on producers and they tend to focus on consumers and they kind of forget the middle group of stakeholders who are responsible for connecting the two. So when transport collapses, when electricity prices go through the roof, cold storage doesn't work, you have massive food loss and food waste, you get massive food spoilage. When markets don't work for various reasons, again, they have to close down for either they're flooded or they're damaged in a hurricane or there's another zoonosis incident. Food markets tend to get closed down. So it's important to keep the middle of the food system flowing. It's important to keep food flowing in the food system. Mm-hmm. Policymakers tend to think about growing food and consuming food, mm. but that middle space is so vital, but it's hidden from their gaze. I think that that's something that was illustrated in the COVID pandemic when it was the livelihoods of many of these people involved in this, in, in, the, in the middle of the food system, in the transportation industry, and in staffing food markets, and selling food whose livelihoods were affected, for whom food insecurity was increasing. And I, I want to shift here actually to talk about food insecurity and malnutrition in urban areas, generally speaking, because it seems to me that there's recognition and increased levels of programming to address malnutrition in urban areas. At the launch of the State of Food Security and Nutrition Report in New York in July of this year, I heard several heads of UN agencies talk about urban areas as locations of these of these challenges. But how do you think about this, about urbanization and, and, and malnutrition and what's gain doing? When I was taught about malnutrition and agriculture, it was very rural. rural. Mm-hmm. It was all about rural development. And the urban space was thought of as a privileged space. These folks have access to power. They have access to a whole range of things. Their livelihoods are not as vulnerable to the vagaries of nature as, as farmers are and rural people. And to some extent, that was right. But because urbanization is such a powerful force, it's happening so quickly in Africa. And it, it can be a windfall or a curse. Mm. It's a bit like a country finding vast reserves of natural gas 
it's like a it's this Dutch disease. Yeah, it yeah. could mm-hmm. it could be a massive positive force for mm-hmm. good or mm-hmm. a, a massive distraction, and you neglect everything else in the country. You neglect different sectors, different mm-hmm. regions. So we have to harness the power of urbanization for good. And I think that means connecting. I think that means better urban governance. And we're working a lot with our urban partners and, and key cities. Mm-hmm. We're helping them develop links with surrounding rural areas. And I think we mustn't neglect the fact that in cities, you get much more inequality than you do in rural areas. That's that's an empirical fact. And inequality leads to social unrest and violence and, and, and exploitation mm-hmm. of women and other vulnerable groups. I couldn't agree with more with what you said, and I, I hope that we will see this rebalancing reflected in policies and programming on the ground going mm-hmm. forward. For everything else that happens this fall, and it's one of the very busy periods for those of us who work on food security and nutrition, um, UNGA, COP, World Food Prize, CFS, et cetera, what's on your agenda? Well, the thing, some of the things I've mentioned, it's um, to get people to focus on diet quality. It's really important. It, it's seen by many policymakers as a nice to have. Let's get hunger sorted out first, and then we do that. Mm -hmm. I I think combating hunger without combating diet quality is a hollow victory because addressing hunger doesn't do anything for for dealing with kids' brain development Mm -hmm. and and all all the early childhood development Mm -hmm. stuff that's so key for the rest of the kids' lives. So I think that's the first thing. Keep going on about diet quality. And we've got the data now Mm -hmm. to back it up. Mm -hmm. We we know in in 40-plus countries Mm -hmm. what diet quality looks like, and it's quite shocking. One of the interesting things, Caitlin, is as income goes up, some aspects of diet quality go up, but many actually go down. It's quite shocking. So there's a we have a two indi- two indices in this diet quality work. One is mm-hmm. NCD promotion and NCD right. protection. Mm-hmm. So as you as your income goes up, your consumption of N- NCD protective NCD being non-communicable mm-hmm. diseases, mm-hmm. your consumption of NCD protective foods goes up things like for fruits and vegetables and pulses, mm-hmm. but your consumption of NCD-promotive mm-hmm. foods, potato chips, Diet Coke, Coke, mm-hmm. that kind of sodas, that kind of thing, that also goes up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to try to get that across. It's not easy, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. data will help. And I think the other thing I want to get across these different events is the importance of climate. The nutrition people have to wake up to climate. And the climate people have to wake up to nutrition. It's an opportunity for mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. The third thing will be uh, just a, a focus on resilience. What does that mm-hmm. mean? How do we make resilience? Is a really tricky word. It essentially means maintain function in the uh, under stress, under shock. Mm-hmm. But we have to make that simple. So the way I think about making it simple is just diversity. Promote diversity, and diversity is often frowned upon. You know, I'm an economist. Diversity is often frowned upon by economists because it's not first best. It's not optimal. Mm-hmm. But we don't live in a first best world. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in an imperfect world, mm-hmm. and diversity is is the insurance policy against that. I want to return real quickly to your first point about um, emphasizing diet quality. Mm-hmm. That that gets often lost in conversations about global food security. That we address hunger first and look at diet quality later, if if, if at all. Of course, people expect you to be talking about diet quality and nutrition. But for those who who work on food security more broadly, one thing that I do, for example, um, when folks just might cite one number and it, it shifts a little bit every year, but the number of people who experience undernourishment, yeah. um, of course, th- this is a lack of access to sufficient calories. 
I like to emphasize another number that's published each year, which is the number of people who cannot afford the least expensive form of a healthy diet, which is around 3 billion, which is around 40% of the world's population. So that's one thing that I do to try to emphasize that it's not just about access to calories. It's also about access to nutritious calories. What would you recommend for those who work on food security more broadly to hook policymakers' attention to this important issue of diet quality? Well, you know, the foods that are the most nutritious also the highest value foods in economic terms. And so if you want your agricultural sector to be really dynamic, you need to focus a little bit more of your ag R&D on those crops. Mm -hmm. You know, the lion's share of the resources go to the four big staples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're important, but the productivity of vegetables and fruits and pulses is also important. Mm -hmm. So I think if you want your agricultural sector to be thriving, Mm -hmm. focus on some of these high value nutrition crops because there are high value economic crops as well. And that forces you to upgrade your cold chains, your value chains, Mm -hmm. your food safety standards for export. But by doing that, you generate domestic spillovers for your domestic consumers. So I think I try to, you know, always try to not drag people into the nutrition space, but to bring nutrition into their space. The food security Mm -hmm. people are worried about hunger, but they're also worried about ag productivity and agricultural sector dynamism. How can nutrition help? No, and I think that's one way. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for that for that advice there. In closing, I want to really shift gears and come back to something that I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, which was an exciting development earlier this year that you were made a companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. What is it like to have CGM as, as initials following your title? Well, no one knows what it means. So that's the first thing. When it happened, I was, you know, because you, you're not, you don't nominate yourself for this. This just happens. Mm-hmm. Someone nominates you somewhere. So I had to read the letter about five times to figure out what it was. The way I could could communicate it to my kids and my family was, this is the one that Daniel Craig got last year. <laughs> so they immediately then accused me of comparing myself to James Bond. So that didn't work very well. Uh, but it was really nice to get the award to, to go to Windsor Castle to meet Prince William. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I'm not, the first thing you notice is how tall he is, my goodness. <laughs> You're like, uh, you know, looking up at the sky. But he must be incredibly well briefed or he must just have a genuine interest in this topic. I think it's a bit of both. First thing he said to me was, so tell me about gain. And I, mm. I thought, kind of thought we were going to talk about the weather a little bit or something like that. But he was very plugged in. He said, so Ukraine must be really challenging for everyone around the world and, and climate change. And, and I, I got in a bit of advice for him about the UK government, what it should be doing, taking oh. a bigger leadership role. <laughs> so that was good. So no, it was, it's nice. And I think it's nice on a personal level, but how can I leverage that yeah. for other things? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that anecdote. Thanks for sharing that anecdote. Congratulations. And thank you for making time to join us today. Hope to welcome you back here again soon for some kind of conversation or event at CSIS, but always uh, appreciate collaborating with you. So thank you, Dr. Lauren Sadad. Likewise, Caitlin. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for all the work you do at CSIS. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.